well, a very warm, <laughs> that's why very warm <laughs> welcome to you. This is a reason for hope, and we are live with you for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. If you have uh, questions on your heart and mind about uh, the Bible or Christian living or world events from a Christian perspective or biblical perspective, we are here to to find those answers. Really, any question, if it's an honest question, as long as you know the answer is going to come from the Bible. That's basically what we do here on A Reason for Hope. Um, we're very glad that you are joining us and have stumbled upon our broadcast or a regular. And my name is Dave Robson. I will be the host today and fielding your questions. And with me, back from his sickbed, is Pastor Sean Richards. Are you feeling better? Actually, I'm a little disappointed. You are? Why? Yeah, I discovered firsthand that filling a waterbed with spring water does not in fact make it bounce. Also with me in the studio <laughs> is Pastor Peter. Martin, how are you doing today? Doing okay. <laughs> Go on. How has, how has been your bed research? Any, any news there? I haven't there? done any bed research. No, okay. Well, get on that and then I'm next time. My, I'm good with my bed. <laughs> next time we can talk. So we seem to go from on the on the scale from very silly to very serious on the show, <laughs> and you're along for the ride. So, well, welcome. Thank you for being here and you guys' faithfulness to God's word and to be here to answer people's questions. It's a very exciting hour indeed. So let me let you know how do I, I always say that wrong? Allow me to tell you how you can join us on uh, on the broadcast. Tony, man, you need a cue card. I did a cue card, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a cue card. This is all in, in my head. You may think that I'm reading something. No, oh. no one thinks you're reading something. Oh. You <laughs> may think that I should, <laughs> but I am not. No one thinks I'm reading something. <laughs> you think I can't read. Uh, but uh, if you're listening to us on Reach Radio or Radio Affili Affiliate, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. Uh, but do consider joining us on one of our other live platforms when you're not on your drive time, but we're very glad that you're tuning in. Uh, a Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So you can find us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab, and you can join us there. Also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, uh, facebook.com slash Tucson. I think it is technically, but if you search, you'll find it. We also have an app that you can download on your mobile device or even on Roku and Apple TV, so you can watch us on the big screen. Why not put us up on the big screen and then use the chat function on your phone? You'll be so comfortable and, and connected with us um, in that way. On YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope, so look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. You can follow Pastor Scott, our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship on Twitter. He's not with us today, hoping that he'll be with us uh, uh, tomorrow. You can follow him on, uh, on Twitter at Scott R for H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. Uh, and follow along. He posts highlights from the show and kind of uh, commentary on world events and uh, witty things and interesting things. So you'll want to follow him there. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. You can uh, connect with us there, of course, anytime at all. Whew, with all that being said, Sean, you're feeling better. It's good to see you upright. Would you like to pray for us and pray for the show? Be honored. Great. <laughs> and thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people and dependent on your mercy. And it's on the basis of all three that we ask you would honor yourself through this program. Allow your people to not only give in ears to hear your voice, but Peter and I as well, 
we would answer these questions according to your word and the spirit of truth that you gave to us and entrusted to us until the day we see you face to face. We're looking forward to that day, but ask for a faithful heart in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, before we dive into people's questions, it's Thursday, and you guys have a tradition of doing rhetoric Thursdays. Could you just briefly tell us what that is and what you have on your hearts today? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So uh, rhetoric is the art of public speaking, and for Christians, one of the main things that we are trying to do is actually spread the Word of God, and that includes not only speaking in public forums, but also speaking in private forums, actually just dialoguing with someone. And so it always helps to bone up your capacities at being able to deliver your faith in a way that's recognizable, understandable, and sympathetic to other people's worldviews. So as we're going through these rhetoric studies, it is a uh, something that was actually included in all schools up until about 100 years ago. <laughs> so every every school used to teach this as a class, and then they just stopped doing it because I guess they figured that we didn't need to know how to talk anymore. I don't, I don't know why they stopped doing that. But me and Sean are here for you. We're here to give you the education that you were denied and to help you understand just the basic rules of what rhetoric is all about, to help you implement these strategies, not only when you share your faith, but also, hopefully, in your dialogue with the people that you love, right? Because uh, as we've been going through not only the do's of rhetoric, what you should be doing, we also have been going through a lot of the don'ts lately, the uh, what we call logical fallacies, ways to argue your point that are not only dishonest, but ways that derail the conversation and don't lead to truth, but only lead to disharmony. And hey, you may win an argument utilizing these tactics, but you're definitely not going to prove anything truthful. So we want to be able to avoid these uh, these kind of missteps when we're talking to people, and we want to be able to, again, portray our views in the most honest and the most uh, ways that hold the most integrity, ways that will actually convince people of truth as opposed to just convincing people that we're right, and those are two different things. So we've been going through a lot of different ones. Today we're going through a real interesting one. I know it's been one on your docket for a while. Why don't you tell us about it, Sean? Yeah, the act of attributing motive, or as people on the internet call it, conversation, is essentially making the mistake that you know the person's heart and intentions when speaking to them, and you hand it to them. Now, this is usually done in a way that's meant to expose underhanded motivations. You're just saying this because you want to do this. And it's a fallacy because it presumes something that isn't necessarily the case. And that not necessarily is the foundation of everything wrong with this speaking fallacy. So when we're talking to people and we seem to understand where they're coming from, we can't go so far as to say this is why you're doing what you're doing. Even if you have a comprehensive understanding of their background, even if they've perhaps told you, you don't know if it's necessarily maybe a humorous manner or it's in a dismissive manner, you don't know their heart. And this is a biblically-based principle as well. God, in his revelation of himself, clarifies that in all of human history, there is one and only one that has known the thoughts and intents of man's heart, and that's him and him alone. For us to claim that would be for us to claim to be God, something that Jesus does in John chapter 1, where it notes Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. That's a reference back to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 11, 
your favorite book of the Bible, probably one of the more relevant passages that says that I, the Lord, search the heart. I know the intents of the mind to give to each man according to his works. So when we're talking to people to presume that we understand or at least know them well enough to say this is what you meant or to say this is why you're doing what you're doing, the fallacy stands or falls on these two simple words, not necessarily. Now, how do we keep ourselves from falling into this? Odds are it's more a uh, emotional snowball effect of the tone of the conversation and trying to get someone back on track, but in the wrong way. If I'm talking to an atheist and I say, well, you're just saying this because you hate Christians or vice versa. You're just saying this because you hate atheists. It's all on the basis of a misappropriation, basically, of someone's ability to know what the other person means and, of course, what they are doing. And here's the big issue. Why? How do we avoid that mistake? Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, Very good question. I'm going to read a passage where we see the first usage of this logical fallacy, and it is by none other than Satan himself. So that should tell us that probably one that we should avoid, but it also should tell us how ubiquitous this fallacy is, meaning that it really does pervade all of humanity. It is one that is very difficult to avoid, one that I make all the time, and I need to be very careful about it, and one that is, again, very difficult to come back from. So this is Satan utilizing this fallacy in the Garden of Eden. This is Genesis chapter 3. And when he's tempting Eve, he says this, uh, Essentially, Eve tells him, like, hey, if we eat of this, we're going to die. Then the serpent said to the woman, this is verse 4, by the way, uh, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice what he's doing. So he's attributing motive to God. God is telling them not to do something. Now, what's God's actual motive for telling us not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, God wants to preserve the innocence of mankind that is preserved based, based on our faithfulness towards him. Adam and Eve in the garden believed what God had said is good and evil. We attributed everything that is based on God's nature to be good and anything that departs from it to be evil, even though we didn't have any knowledge of what would depart from God's nature because there was nothing that departed from God's nature within the garden. So that reliance and that faithfulness is what built the relationship of man and God. What Satan is now doing is he's saying, no, 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 The real reason why God put this tree in the middle of the garden is because he knows that it will actually make you like him, that you're going to be able to discern for yourselves what is right and what is wrong. And how do you really know that God got it right? Maybe there are means of goodness and means of evil that God is forbidding from you that are actually good, and maybe it's your right, it's your liberty to be able to take this fruit and figure it out for yourself. That was the temptation. And so he's attributing a... I guess you call it a deceptive motive to God. He's saying that God is deceiving you. He's manipulating you. That's why he's doing it. And that lie actually is something that Adam and Eve start to believe, right? They start to accept it as being true. And that is why not only do they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the saying that God comes back into the garden, what do they do? They hide, right? They hide from him because they see him as now a uh, evil or maleficent, uh, malevolent force that is within the Garden of Eden. So very important to see that this is something that is literally on the second page of the Bible, something that goes throughout all of human history, and something, like I said, that I see all the time in my counselings. Uh, and it, I would say it 
might be the number one issue I see within marital counseling. So people assuming that they know why their spouse is doing a particular thing or not doing a particular thing. It's why a lot of people actually avoid conversations. Uh, they, they justify themselves to me. They say, well, you know, I, I would talk to them about it, but they're not going to listen. So you just, you just know that they're not going to listen? Well, you know, this is definitely done. This was definitely done to hurt me, right? They, they're definitely out to get me. Why would I talk to them if I know that they're out to get me? Uh, would you talk to someone if you knew that they were just going to yell at you or abuse you again? Well, if they were. Yeah, if I knew. Right? Uh, and inside of my marriage, like I said, I struggle with this a lot. Whenever me and my wife get into a fight, nine times out of 10 is because I'm attributing a motive to her that's not actually there. Right. I, I pick up on something that she did or something that she said or a tone or something like that. And I assume, oh, man, she was just look at that look that she just gave me or look at the tone of her voice. And I start to assume things about her and then we get into an argument. So the the first step in avoiding this fallacy from you making this fallacy is just as Sean said, you don't know. You don't know. Unless it's explicitly told to you, you just don't know. In 1 Corinthians 13, we have a depiction of love and it says love hopes all things, right? What this means is that love is optimistic. Even naively optimistic at times, right? When you look at the way that God treats people in the Old Testament, you're like, God, you, you seem a little naive here, man. Like you are, you are giving people a lot of rope knowing that they're going to hang themselves with it. Well, God's not naive. God is hopeful. He gives people the benefit of the doubt because this is very important. If you want people to act in a particular way, treat them as if they are acting in that way. If you want people to act to the lowest parts of their humanity, treat them as if they have something to hide, something that they have to be ashamed of, right? So it is a kind of a paradox a little bit, but within marital counseling, what I tell people is if you treat your spouse as if they are a loving, respectable spouse, they'll start acting more that way. If you treat your spouse as if they are a vindictive, bitter, disrespectful, unloving kind of a person, they're going to start behaving in that way towards you treat people as you would like them to be, and they might start acting that way. doesn't mean they will start acting that way, but it gives them a lot more room to maneuver within their character. Treat people as if they are evil, and they will start acting that way. They will live down to the identity that you ascribe to them through your behavior. So be very, very careful. You don't know why people are doing things the way that they are. It's okay in certain circumstances to ask, but only if you have a lot of evidence and you don't do it in a leading way, right? So when I say a leading question, don't say, you were just doing that to hurt me, weren't you, right? That's, that's not a question. That's, you already know the answer to that question. You are assuming some, you are definitely presuming in that tone. But if you say, hey, you know what? I'm not really sure why you did this or why you did that. I perceived it this way, but I, I could totally be wrong, right? I could totally be wrong. Please let me know if I'm wrong. I wanna believe I'm wrong. But, you know, was this done to hurt me? Was this done as an offensive thing? Just let me know, please, right? The more you're able to do that with uh, an assertive tone of voice, meaning you're not doing it out of uh, fear, you're not doing it out of anxiety, but you're able to just assert that and say, this is what I think. I could be completely wrong and I want to be wrong. Please let me know what's going on inside of your head. And I'll just believe whatever you say, right? If you tell me that you didn't mean anything by it, I'll believe that because you know what, again, some people are like, well, I know that they, I don't care what they say. I know that they did this to hurt me. I know that they did this to, 
okay, well, you're not really going to get very far in life if you just attribute motive to everybody. You're not going to be able to have any type of loving relationship if that's the way you're going to behave. you got to function off of hope. you got to function off of some amount of optimism in your relationships, or you're just going to be so embittered at humanity that you're going to end up alone. So if that's what you want, I guess go for it. But if you want to have loving and caring relationships, you're going to have to be able to give people the benefit of the doubt here and there. Now, there's one caveat I'll add to this. This almost never happens. And I almost hate giving caveats because I know that when I do this, people are going to use this as an excuse to feed their flesh. Challenge yourself with what I'm about to say. There is one group of people out there that you have to be very cautious of, and that would be intentionally manipulative, narcissistic, gaslighting individuals, right? So people who will slight you and then lie about it to your face, right? Those people do exist. They're out there. They have a website. It's called <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> and actually, you know, we're seeing a lot of it in politics right now. People just openly gaslighting in front of the news and the media it, on both sides, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's really atrocious, but it's, it's there. So there are this small, but believe me, it's a small percentage of people. It seems like it's a large percentage of people because like you said, Sean, it's all over Twitter, but there's, these are just the people that are acting in their worst humanity when you're on social media. The majority of people don't do this with regular um, focused animosity like real gaslighters do. Most people do this unintentionally or they do it on a whim if they are going to do it. But mo- a lot of people don't do it at all, right? When they are wrong or they've done something, they might ignore the question. They might diffuse the question, but they, they won't lie to your face unless you're dealing with someone that has some serious problems. So test yourself right? Don't just assume, well, no, I'm dealing with Peter. I'm dealing with the 2% you were talking about. I am dealing with a narcissist. Maybe you're not, you know, maybe you're not, right? Be sure that you're investigating this. Give people the benefit of the doubt as most, as much as you can. But once you've come to the conclusion, once you get to the place where you're like, no, I've, I've talked to other people about this. Other people have witnessed it. It's not just me. This person does this particular thing then you could start working through it. If, if you guys have a question about how to deal with people who gaslight or narcissists, ask us in the comments. I'd be happy to talk about it a little bit. But for the most part, try not to do that. Now, if somebody does it to you, right? Someone attributes motive to you, the best way to defuse that situation is to ask a follow-up question. So this is what God does. <laughs> so again, who better to learn for from than God, right? So God goes into the garden, and, you know, he could have easily just been like, Adam, I know what you did. I'm kind of God. I saw what you did. I know why you're hiding. Let's have a talk, bro. But he doesn't. He comes in the garden and he says, where are you? Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. So notice he's still attributing kind of that motive to God. You are someone to be feared. You are someone to be afraid of. Not I've done something wrong and you're just to be upset with me. It's you're a terrifying person and I'm hiding from you, right? This kind of thing. By the way, we call this cry bully tactics in modern day vernacular. Uh, Oh, I didn't want to talk to you because you're just so mean. You know, like you yelled at me before. Okay, fine. So how does God deal with this? So Adam's kind of passively attributing motive to God. How does he handle this? He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? So he asks him a question that actually infers, why are you attributing this motive to me, Adam? Right? So God is able to see through it and he's able to say, hey, why are you asking this question? What's really going on, man? Right? So if you're talking to someone and they assume something, well, you're just saying that because you want to take away women's rights. 
well, you're just saying that because you're just a big meanie, or you're just saying that because you want to beat up on other people's religions and feel like a big person. Okay, you know, why are you asking me? What what have I done to make you that makes you feel that way? You know, have I have I been offensive to you? Have I been uh, abusive to you in some way? Like, what have I done that makes you feel in this manner? I, I actually uh, had a counseling not too long ago, a couple months ago, and they stopped seeing me, and it was because they they felt like I was a, a mean person and I wasn't telling them what they wanted. And I was like, fine, I'm done with you. And I was talking to my friend, Lisa Keller, who counsels with me. And she says, you know, you should really close out that counseling. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, in your flesh, you're just going to want to be done with this person because they're, they're, being, uh, they're being rude to you. They're attributing motive. You just want to be done with them. But don't. Take that step. Talk to them and say, hey, like, did I do something to offend you? Like, genuinely. And see what they say. Because maybe you did something wrong. And maybe you need to repent. And obviously, in my flesh, I didn't want to hear that. But... I went to the person, I asked him, hey, honestly, man, like, what did I do that was wrong? You know, did I do something that was offensive? And they responded to me, well, no, I just felt that way. And I was like, okay, well, you know, like I, I tried. Uh, you just feel that way. There's nothing I could do about that. You know, if, if you just feel as though I am acting in this way and you don't have any definitive examples of me behaving in a, in a bad way, there's nothing I could do at that point. So. Yeah, uh, Proverbs 20, uh, 26 verses 4 through 5 essentially give us the practice round for how to keep this in check. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own eyes. But note the previous verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. So how do we maintain this balancing act? We don't make the mistake of saying, you're a fool before the conversations had or has been had before. When we judge based on reputation, we're not doing so in violation, by the way, of Matthew 6, but in fulfillment of it, or Matthew 7, excuse me. When we're talking to people who have a continual pattern of doing something that doesn't tell us their heart, that tells us whether or not this is a conversation worth having again. And that's the difference. I don't determine someone's a fool based off whether or not I feel they won't listen to me, that I will be a fool in engaging with them. I always give someone the benefit of the doubt and speak to them first if they say no or they continue in the pattern that you suspect but aren't attributing yet, then and only then are you putting yourself in the right place to say, this is a conversation I would rather disengage from than to blame someone for something that isn't actually known. So remember, the first and most fundamental fact of attributing motive is you don't know that. I know what they're thinking. No, you don't. This is what they meant. No, it isn't. You can verify that later, but make sure that any determination of someone as a fool comes from experience rather than perception. That's how we avoid this fallacy. One last thing to, to put, don't text. Yeah, <laughs> Just stop it. If, if, if you're reading a text from somebody and you're like, what did they mean by that? Conversation Go resolution. talk to them, right? Stop texting at that moment, mm. because whatever is going to come in that conversation after that point, once there's even an intimation that there's bad motive going on within a text conversation or an email conversation or a thread on social media, just stop right there mm. <laughs> because you're not going to get anywhere good. Say, hey, can we talk about this in person? Can we talk about this face to face? Because, again, it's so easy to just read into things uh, when people are texting because, again, there's there's no... Uh, unless people are high in their emojis, you know, like there's no the, real they'll, way of uh, pull an HK forty seven and preface every conversation with their emotional state. We, yeah. we don't do that yeah. unless we're being funny. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, I'm. 
And what I'm hearing is that, you know, you can, you can attribute motive to God, but sometimes that happens not like with ill will. Sometimes we just have an inaccurate view of who God is, maybe based on, you know, our own parents or our own father or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, where mm -hmm. we think God is, must be thinking a certain way or acting a certain way, but that's not really the truth of, of his character. You know, yeah. would you agree with that? So just- No, I, and I would agree with that across the board. I, I think a lot of times when people get into patterns, like behavioral patterns, where they're consistently attributing motive, it's because they've come across a lot of bad behaviors. Mm. Uh, so, you know, if I'm dealing with someone in a counseling and let's say they grew up with abusive parents and now they consistently attribute bad motive to their spouse. Mm. That makes sense. It's because they're acting out what they're familiar with. And that could from even experience. be from experience. And right. that could even be projected upon God. Of uh, I had a father that treated me in this really bad way. He withheld things from me. He withheld love and affection. So I feel like God is doing the same kind of a thing. Or maybe you had a dad, you could never live up to their expectations. And so you feel like you can never live up to God's expectations. Mm. That happens a lot. And the way to cleanse yourself of that is with this virtue that we call faith, right? Believing something in spite of what you emotionally are experiencing. So I am emotionally experiencing God is doing this evil and horrible thing, mm. but I'm, I'm choosing to believe the opposite, right? And this is what you see in Jeremiah. It's one of my favorite, that's why it's one of my favorite books is because Jeremiah attributes to motive all over the place, right? Yeah. <laughs> in that book, he does it. He does it like me. every other chapter, right? Mm. He, he just, God, you're you're out to get me. He even flat out says, "You deceived me," right? He, that's what mm. he says to God. So I, I I like his honesty. But over time, you see God being a little bit more harsh with Jeremiah. In the beginning of the book, he's he's like, "Hey, man, I get it. I know why you're. I know why you're a little freaked out by me, considering the fact that your own family tried to kill you." But I'm not. I told one of you people, this in right? chapter one. Right? He's like, I'm not trying to get you, man. It's okay. Right? He's very gentle. Towards the end, he goes, "You got to stop, man. Yeah. I I haven't done anything against you. You need to stop attributing this kind of." And Jeremiah gets the picture at the end, which is really really beautiful. So absolutely, past events can make people more susceptible to this fallacy. So mm -hmm. it's not as if I'm looking at someone who does this and say, "You're you're just so wrong. You're just off. You just want your way." No, there, there are legitimate reasons as to why people make this mistake, but it remains a mistake. Mm -hmm. And it's one that you have the power to change. You have the power to change your mindset when it comes to talking to people. Mm. Very good. Thank you for that. I hope that helps, helps you out and <clears throat> as you think through that in your life and relationships. Um, had a more of a comment from Mac D. He said, if you were to search my mind and heart, it's pretty bad. Not completely, but I have not so good thoughts and motives, some hate judgment and others it's a struggle to know that i have that evil um it's so not really a question but uh how do we i guess the point is we all have <laughs> you know these thoughts and things in us how do we deal with that how do we properly process that and and categorize that as we deal with these thoughts and motives and the flesh continue from romans 3 on to romans 4 through 12 there is none who seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Right. Paul acknowledges all this, but that's in order to establish the fact we need a Savior, yeah. not just to leave us in chapter 3. Yeah, yeah I'd um, point back to a great Christian thinker, Dorothy Sayers. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote this after World War II when people had really come across the just the absolute depths of depravity that exists inside of mankind. You know, it's easy in certain instances to believe that man's pretty okay. And that's what a lot of the cultural elite were believing at that time. And then they started unearthing the mass graves at the Holocaust. And they they realized, wow, 
man is pretty messed up and they didn't know what to do with it. And uh, this is what she writes about that. Uh, She says, talking about two Christians going back and forth about what the greatest strength of Christianity is. Uh, she says that the greatest strength is actually the belief in the total depravity of man. Now, now listen to her uh, argue this, right? This is her argumentation for that. To them, speaking of people who have this really, uh, I guess you call a naively optimistic view of human nature, and that might even include your own, right? Having a naively optimistic view of your own nature. Uh, she says to them, the appalling outbursts of bestial ferocity in the totalitarian states, or you could put it in yourself, right? When you do something, that is really horrible and evil. Um, And the obstinate selfishness and the stupid greed of the capitalistic societies, they are not merely shocking and alarming. For them, these things are the utter negation of everything which they have come to believe. It uh, It is thought that the bottom had dropped out of their universe. Now, for the Christian, this isn't so. He is as deeply shocked and grieved as anyone else, but he is not astonished. He has been accustomed to the idea that there is a deep interior dislocation in the very center of the human personality. Mm -hmm. The delusion of the mechanical perfectibility of mankind through a combined process of scientific knowledge and unconscious evolution has been responsible for a great deal of heartbreak. It is at bottom far more pessimistic than the Christian pessimism because if science and progress break down, there is nothing to fall back upon. The Christian dogma of the double nature of man, which asserts that man is disintegrated and necessarily imperfect in himself and all of his works, yet closely related to a real unity of substance with an eternal perfection within and beyond him, makes the present parlous state of humanity a little less hopeless and less irrational. So for Dorothy Sayers, what she's saying is looking at Sean's argument and going through Romans 1 through 4, she's saying actually... The Romans 1 through 3 passages, which seem to be such a bleak picture of man. Uh, You're like, man, that seems so pessimistic, Paul, that I got to look at this and say, no one is good. No, not one. We all deceive lies. No one pursues God. No one knows how to seek peace. Right? And he goes down just this list of scriptures that show just how depraved we are. For Paul, he says, unless you grapple with the truth of your inner depravity, not only will you not be ready for the gospel, but you're not even going to be ready for reality. Mm. Right. Once those thoughts start popping up inside of your head, if you're not ready for that, if that doesn't isn't an expectation for you, you're not going to know how to grapple with them. Most people and uh, a lot of a lot of repression happens in individuals because they don't want to see this dark part of their nature. Mm. They shut it out. They pretend like it's not there, but eventually it's going to come out. And, uh, and so, Mac, man, I, I feel you, but I'd say you're on the right track. The fact that you recognize this depravity within your nature means that you are ready to start receiving, and you probably already are, uh, you've probably already received the gospel, but allow the gospel to continuously minister to that part of you, right? The reason why Jesus died for mankind was because we were so fallen that there was no way to redeem man in his own efforts, right? Jesus had to die for us. That's why substitutionary atonement is such an important doctrine of Christianity, and the unification of the Godhead via the Holy Spirit, right? Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why God had to do that. We're unified to a perfection outside of ourselves. That's what's making us back into the image of God. So that belief is pure, it's beautiful, but remember, it won't be satisfied until we see Jesus face to face. So be mm. be patient, right? But also walk in that beautiful assurance of God's love. I, I think uh, Bo will like this. 
quote a little Pascal, which Bo loves. Uh, Pascal said, God, our God, the God of the Bible, is the only one that you can approach both without shame and without arrogance, mm. right? Because when you come to our God, you're coming to a God who loves you unconditionally, right? That deals with your shame, but a God who also acknowledges just how fallen and depraved you are that deals with your arrogance. So we need to have both sides dealt with at the cross before we can approach our lives in a meaningful way. Yeah, very good. Mike, thank you for that comment, and I hope in that you know you're not alone. Welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, as, as Peter said, that is part of the, the, uh, the gospel message. It's the bad news that comes before the good news that we're all in that, we're in that boat. So thank you. Hope you feel ministered to and encouraged in that. Um, question from Nina. Uh, why don't we know what happened to Jonah, the older brother of the prodigal son, and Simon the sorcerer? Is this the same with Solomon? Did Solomon repent? I heard it was someone else who wrote Ecclesiastes. So I think if I'm understanding it, the question, you know, why don't we kind of hear the end of the story of some of these biblical characters? Am I understanding that question? Let us know, Nina. But uh, as far as the question itself, we aren't told the ending of Jonah because the point was accomplished. The purpose of the book wasn't to tell us Jonah's story. It was Jonah's witness of, and this is key, God's character towards Nineveh. We aren't told the incident of Simon the Sorcerer's, in, uh, I guess, end story. We're going to get to this in a few weeks on our Sunday studies through the book of Acts because the book of Acts isn't the acts of those who departed from the faith or pursued it. It was the acts of the apostles, those who were <clears throat> sent out. Simon the Sorcerer was an example of someone who I believe was committing, an, uh, I, what's the term for it, Simonism, the idea of purchasing roles in the church. It would be an early example of that. But he said, uh, show me how I can lay hands on people. And he offered the money. He said, your money perish with you. So not exactly Simonism, but he was asking for the Holy Spirit on the basis of financial gain. And that's not how that works. <laughs> um, the point was made, Nina. The story wasn't told because the point wasn't to tell a story. It was to make a point, I think is the best way to put it. As far as uh, someone else writing Ecclesiastes, I don't know who else has been brought up, people might dismiss Solomon, but you can't make a dismissal without an affirmation. So balls in the court of the person who made the denial. There are a few reasons we believe that Solomon was the writer of Ecclesiastes, and if you have a follow-up question on that, let us know. But when it comes to the purpose of Scripture, if this is the substance of your question, let us know if it is. The purpose wasn't to tell these people's stories, it was to tell God's story. And if the point was made, the story's been told. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, let's. I want to focus on the prodigal son one. So I think the more interesting one would be the the Jonah and the prodigal son. Like, why aren't the endings given to those stories? So there's insinuation of like, well, who wrote Jonah? Uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously, it would probably be Jonah. So the insinuation is that he did convert. But why wouldn't he give the ending? And same with the story of the prodigal son. Why didn't Jesus give the ending of the prodigal son? I think that one has a more clear understanding of why Jesus didn't give the ending. Uh, if you read the preamble to the story, Jesus is talking to a split group, and specifically the religious elite, right? The Pharisees and the, uh, the, the religious Jews of the day were very upset with the fact that he was ministering to people who were not the best, right? <laughs> not, not, not the highlights of society, right? People who are engaging in a lot of depravity, uh, like tax collectors, uh, drunkards, prostitutes, people like that. And they were coming to repentance in his ministry. 
and the Pharisees were not too happy about that. So the point of the story uh, is essentially you guys are the older brother. You, Even though you're accepted by the father and you're in his house, you're resentful of God's mercy towards people who have departed, people who have gone into a very uh, terrible set of circumstances and really depraved set of sins, and you're upset that they're coming out of it. Uh, so he was pointing out something that was in their own hearts. And when stories end like that, like one of my favorite movies is Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio. I really like it. A lot of people were upset that it doesn't have an ending, mm-hmm. right? So he he spins the top. Those of you guys who haven't seen the movie, you should probably watch it. It's pretty awesome. But he spins the top, and it, you don't ever know if it topples or not, meaning you don't spoiler ever know. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> so you don't ever know at the end if he's in a dream or if he's in reality. And the reason why uh, Christopher Nolan intentionally did that is uh, a very important storytelling technique. The reason why he didn't do that is because the whole point of the story is to juxtapose the idea of, are you living your life or are you spending your life in dreams, right? Are you spending your life trying to chase aspirations and never making any practical steps towards making these things applicable and thus becoming an embittered person? So the reason why it doesn't end that way, right, with a definitive statement of whether he's in a dream or reality is because that doesn't matter. The point is that he's chosen to live his life wherever he is, right? He's chosen to stop dwelling on dreams and fantasies. And the same thing has to be true with us, right? So it's a call to us as well of you need to make that same decision to choose to live your life um, as if it's real, regardless, right? You, If you go into that solipsistic, like, I don't know what's real, and I don't know what's going to happen, right? You're not going to do anything and your life's going to be meaningless, right? It's better to just choose whatever reality you have to live it to its fullest. So it's an interesting message, but in the prodigal son, same thing. What are you going to do, right? Are you in a circumstance where, you know, I, th- I think uh, Scott was talking about this just a couple of days ago, where he's like, you're either in the situation of a prodigal, you're in the situation of a father, you're in the situation of the son. What are you going to do? Are you going to accept in people who have failed and, and glorify God for the grace and mercy that he's shown? Mm-hmm. Uh, for Jonah, what are you going to do? Are you going to, in the same circumstance, are you going to glorify God for his mercy, or are you going to resent him for giving that mercy to people that you feel like should be judged more harshly? So I, I think there's a reason as to why the stories, those particular stories don't have an ending. I think, like you said, Sean, the Solomon story, as well as the Simon the Sorcerer, I think that there's a, a more practical reason why an ending is not given. Yeah, the point was made, <clears throat> therefore the story is told. The, mm-hmm. point of the, the point of the story is to make a point. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean... <laughs> Considering the Bible is God's word, it's amazing. It's so small, really. When you, I mean, it's a big, it's a big book, relatively. But collection it's like, of books, a collection yeah. of books. That's right, a collection of books. <clears throat> but you'd think there'd be a whole matrix style, you know, library that would come up when you when you're yeah. thinking of the things of God. So, so yeah, I like that. the The purpose of the the stories. What was the purpose of what was told? Um, thank you, guys. I like it. Um, thank you for that that question as well. A uh, question from Jeffrey sent through to our email address, which is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any information on the prophecy referenced in Jude one fourteen? Yeah, Jude that's 14. A, it's a quotation from the book of First Enoch. There are five. Um, I don't remember the exact chapter and verse, but essentially uh, the question is, if this is quoted in Scripture, does that then validate First Enoch as divine scripture? And that's the question, because there are people who, around the 14th, 15th century, introduced new books to the Old Testament and certain uh, implications to the new, 
in order to answer political challenges. So when we're talking to people about, are there books cut from the Bible? I believe uh, Dwayne also had a question uh, generally in that ballpark. Uh, The concern that people have with the book of Enoch is not because they've read it and they think this belongs in the Bible, it's because a verse from it is quoted in the Bible, and so people who've already come to the conclusion that this belongs in the Bible, use that as evidence. The question is, is that sufficient? And the answer is no. How do I say that? Well, because there are quotations of things also in the Bible from verifiably pagan sources that would, it would be inappropriate to conclude, that would be in contradiction to the whole of Scripture. And by the way, Enoch is one of them. If you've read the five books of Enoch, you know that it blasphemes the Messiah by calling Enoch the Anointed One and so forth. And not the Anointed One in a general sense, by the way, the promised Messiah. Seven, well, we don't know how many years before the time of David, but many, many, Long time. <laughs> many Christmases ago when puppies were the oldest animals. The point is this, when we're talking about first Enoch, there has to be first an understanding of what the book is, second, why it was brought up, and third, what Jude brought it up to be in the first place, because there's references in, I believe, first Timothy and in Titus to the pagan philosopher Epimenides. And because he made a true statement, or Acts 17, excuse me, um, he made a true statement that we're all God's children. That was in reference to Zeus, but it's true in Scripture as well. So what's being affirmed? The entire book and writings of Epimenides or the statement, we are God's children? If Enoch, and this is Jude 1.14, God comes with ten thousands of his saints to judge the righteous and the wicked, so on and so forth. Is that a true statement? Yes, I wouldn't have to quote Enoch to make that point. I could go to Revelation, I could go to Zechariah, I could go to Habakkuk, I can go to Isaiah, I can go to plenty of places. But in the context Jude is speaking to, they were familiar with the books attributed to Enoch, that by the way, Enoch never wrote, the authors of the books of Enoch never claimed, and of course, that if anyone did, they'd be killed with rocks. The key in understanding this, both to Duane and to, who is the one who asked the first question? Uh, Jeffrey, was it? Uh, yes, yes, Jeffrey, yeah. To Jeffrey and well, to Duane. Tanakh is an abbreviation of the Jewish Old Testament. Still, what they recognize today, what they recognized in the first century, what they recognized in the third century before Christ, what they recognized in the fourth century from the time of the writing of Malachi. It's this plain statement. The same 39 books in the Old Testament were recognized by the Jews that we as Protestant Christians are still recognizing today. Now, why do I say that in authority over Roman Catholicism's claims that there are uh, around 17, I think, ex- or seven or so books that need to be included in the Bible as well, Esdras and so forth? Well, Romans chapter 3 and verse 1 says this, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision, one of the physical marks that would note you as one of God's anointed people? Much in every way. Now, Here's his clarification. What's the benefit? It's obviously not to get you saved. Romans 2 goes on to note, if you don't keep the law, knowing the law is pointless. But what then advantage has the Jew? To them were committed the oracles of God. Peter, what what is being said there when it says that the oracles of God were not only an advantage, but a singular honor given to the Jews? that's relevant to our understanding of salvation. Right, you'd be referring to what you said, Tanakh, right? The Old Testament scriptures. And uh, with a specific emphasis on uh, the idea of an oracle with something like a vision or mm-hmm. an actual prophetic uh, type of ministration. So he's not talking about the 
what we call the Apocrypha, right? The, the Mid-Testament books that were written by the Jewish people, where they didn't even claim that they were being given divine revelation, that the Holy Spirit was guiding them, or anything like that. They were just writing, some of them were just simple history books, like the books of Maccabees. Yeah. Um, others were not great history books, like Esdras, <laughs> that makes some pretty glaring errors. Yeah, uh, um, what happened? Documentation of a uh, man and his family's journeys from the Assyrian exile, the northern tribes being taken into captivity. He gives an account of him encountering the archangel of healing and doing some weird stuff, but the point being made is very pseudo-history, and the authors themselves clarified that. That's right. So, And then uh, also, like you mentioned early Enoch, which is not written by Enoch, but supposed to go over things that happened during Enoch's life and some after, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, you have these interesting things, but Paul wouldn't be referencing what we would call the oracles, right? So in order for a book to be in the Old Testament, it would have to have been written by someone with this prophetic ministry. Uh, this is why some books are mentioned in the Old Testament, but they're not contained within it, right? So the Old Testament authors mention, for instance, the books of Jasher, uh, mentions books of the kings of the north, right? So we have the uh, books dedicated to specifically the kings of the south, which would be First and Second Chronicles, and we have books dedicated to, to the kings of both north and south, but the writer of Chronicles and Kings mentions that there's another volume of books dedicated to the kings in the north. We don't have them, right? So there's there's a reason why we don't have them, though. They were Even though they might have been historically accurate and good, profitable maybe, they weren't inspired, right? There was no prophetic ministration to give these books, and that's very important. So when Paul uses the word oracle, there's a reason why he's using that word, and it does reference to something very specific, not just any book written by the Jews. So. Yeah. So then going back to the main point, what then did Jude have? What reason did he have to bring up Enoch in the first place? The whole point of the book of Enoch was, hey, I'd love to just tell you about Jesus and our common salvation, but there's these guys here that are coming in with false teachings, and we got to deal with this. And he goes on to say and makes basically seven comparisons. These guys are worthless. These guys are empty. They contribute nothing, and God will deal with them. Then he brings up Enoch as a point of emphasis and saying not only in the Bible, like Genesis, like the flood, like Sodom and Gomorrah and others, but God will even deal with them in any broad sense. You've heard in these writings that God will judge. So for me to make the comparison, it would be like me saying, you know, Black Adam came out last Friday, saying, I won't spoil anything, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, just like a DC comic hero would ultimately you know, deal with the bad guy or uh, unnamed golden helmeted figure gave his life for those that he loved. So to Christ gave his life for you. I can make these comparisons. Sorry if that's too much, but <laughs> the point being made is just that if we're going to deal with these things, first know what the first book of Enoch was mentioning, why Jude brought it up. If you make the association, apply that consistently elsewhere. And if that leads to nonsense, take a different approach. Obviously, we don't believe Enoch is the anointed Messiah. That would be not only, well, not necessarily uh, anachronistic because the proto-Evangelion, uh, Genesis chapter 3, had been given at that point, but we don't have the term Mashiach or promised one. There was just an expectation of the sun. That's why Eve was so bummed out when Abel was born, but that's another question and another topic. We need to be consistent with how we handle Scripture, though, and that's the point. Jude brings up Enoch because it was something his contemporaries, people living at his time, were familiar with. 
Does that then mean that this belongs in the Bible? No more than uh, Epimenides. No more than anything else quoted outside of the Bible that isn't in the Bible. And that's for a reason. The Jews are authority for their scriptures, not the Roman Catholics, not the Ecclesia, the ones whom God revealed them to. We can recognize the New Testament, but by the way, we determine that because of their standards too. So make sure that that's how you consistently apply it, how you consistently test it, and ultimately how you examine your conclusions as well as your questions. Let us know if that helps, Dwayne and Jeffrey. Jeffrey, yeah. Thank you for those questions. I hope that does help you. I look at you two answering two questions at once. Such show-offs. Same topic. I say, yeah, that's right. Very, very good stuff. I have a question from Albert. Why didn't yeah? Why didn't God allow Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life after they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Would it be better had they have eaten from the tree of life afterwards, and Jesus wouldn't have to uh, wouldn't have had to have died? He wouldn't have had to, but then we'd all be in hell. Yeah. So uh, let me read the passage, and then we'll get a good idea of what Sean means by "we would all be in in hell" because he is right. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's let's read. <laughs> his why is right. Yeah. His 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 way is right. But uh, let me give you some scriptural backing for why he's saying that. Uh, so this is Genesis chapter three, verse twenty-two. The Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, <clears throat> yeah, eat and live forever. Therefore." The Lord God sent out of the Garden of Eden so uh, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So notice what would have happened if they ate of the tree of life. They would be immortal. So to be immortal in a fallen state would not be a good thing. So in other words, longevity of life is not something that is a good in and of itself. That's what makes hell, hell, right? If, 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 uh, if hell was shorter, it would actually be less suffering. Um, anyone who's gone through any amount of suffering, you know that. It's the longevity of time that makes it so brutal. Uh, if it was just a very short and uh, traumatic thing that happens all at once, that's bad, but it's not that bad. Long, drawn-out suffering is the worst to endure over time. So, if God were to have allowed us to live forever in that fallen state, things would not have been very good for us. And that's why, by the way, even in fiction, people who don't know God at all, whenever they write of people who are immortal, they're miserable, right? So the picture of Dorian Gray, guy's pretty miserable. Uh, you go into more modern stuff, Wolverine, he's pretty miserable, right? It, there's something in the human heart that knows to live forever in a fallen state would not be a good thing, right? Yeah, there's a in, lot of good things fallen. on this earth. But as C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, there's a lot of things that might bother me in this life, but if I'm only going to live 80 or 90 years, it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) But he's like, if I'm going to live for 5,000 years, they would become an absolute hell and torment to me. So Mm. um, yeah, if you stretch out this life longer than what we're given on this planet, that would not be a blessing. It would eventually turn into a curse. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Albert, for that question. Uh, We should have time for this question. Question from Yari. Basically, to sum it up, um, who, who are the Nephilim? He, he said he read in Kings where uh, the commander Samuel. killed. Second Samuel, okay, where a person like a lion was killed, basically. But his question is, how do we know the Nephilim were just regular people? Or if not, who were the Nephilim? This talk of them being an 
angel-human hybrid and yeah. kinds of theories on that, right? Yeah, there's two general ballpark views. I'll be brief because we've got about five minutes. The positions on the Nephilim, the word just means fallen ones, uh, comes from the book of Genesis chapter 6 where it notes there were giants living in the earth at that time, and these are the Nephilim. It goes on to note that point. When uh, people kind of get too far into a presumption, it's basically just asking, like we talked about with the Enoch passage, is your application of Scripture consistent, and are you honest enough to acknowledge when there's conflict with that conclusion? Are you willing to change your position if the rest of Scripture disagrees with you? So let's go through the positions as honestly and not straw manny as I can. Uh, First, when we're talking about our position, Genesis chapter 4 and 5 set up the context of Genesis chapter 6, that these new characters that are introduced, the Nephilim, the fallen ones, are being described not in their physical traits, this giant, but it's in referring to their relationship with God as well as their influence over other people, that they were mighty men in the world, not just literally like Shaq is today, but in the sense that the celebrities of the world at this time, the most influential people, were going on Twitter saying, oh, I hate Jews and stuff, and you note the reference. But the point being made is just that. We'd note the immediate context as a point of emphasis. Then we'd also apply it outside of the Bible, in Numbers, or outside of the Bible, outside of the Torah, not Torah, Outside of Genesis, Numbers is in the Torah, um, chapter 25, where it notes that they would have an incident that would directly apply to this kind of situation. What situation was that? Well, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, it notes that mankind's heart was only evil continually and that God had even gotten to the point where he's just like, I regret this. (laughs) This is about to wipe itself out. So when this Nephilim concept is introduced. It's the context of mass violence, a mass rejection towards God, and on what premise? Here's where the controversy is. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, duh, and they took wives for themselves, and offspring were born to them. These are the giants, the great men of old. You you get the point. So who are the sons of God? The argument is these are either as the immediate context would suggest, the godly line of Seth that were introduced in Genesis chapter 5, or these are angelic creatures, thus the angel hybrid mark. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason uh, Numbers 25 is brought up will be important in a second, but again, I only have about 400 of them, so let me be brief. In the argument for half-demon hybrids, uh, they would go to Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, as well as the book of Jude chapter 1 and verse 6, where it mentions there are angels that were judged by God who went after strange flesh. Now note, it doesn't say that they were the sons of God who saw the daughters of men, but they'd note that there was an incident where spiritual beings interacted with flesh in some way and resulted in judgment from it. I think that's a fair representation, even of a point I disagree. The next illustration notes that it could have been sexual morality because it also mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, and their problem was that. And then it goes on to imply they were judged for the same reasons. Um, Likewise, uh, the motive for these angels going after strange flesh is because in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, it says that angels aren't capable of being saved from their sins. It's a paraphrase, but the point is that would be a necessary premise for this plot. Demons would try to make a race of humans incapable of salvation, the fallen ones. I would disagree with this for two reasons. First, if I examine that conclusion, 
just as much as the premises, because the premises are all scripture. That's to their credit. But the conclusion conflicts with scripture, and here's where. In Numbers chapter 22 and verse 30, Jesus speaking on relations in the afterlife, in the context of marital relations in particular, that Genesis chapter 6 specifically mentions as the context. It says that the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. So anyone taking wives for themselves could not be angels because of a truth statement that was made by God. The counter-argument is, well, that's the sons of God at the time of the Matthew's writing, not the sons of God at the time of Genesis. Apart from begging the question, here's another problem. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, sons of God are referring to human beings as well. In Numbers chapter 13, verses 22 through 23, the Nephilim, were still around. It was describing normal human beings living at the time of the uh, Canaanite wars. Also note, there is no passage where genes are in any way associated with your salvation unless you assume that conclusion into Genesis chapter 6 where it notes that Noah was perfect in his genealogies. We believe that's a reference to him being a descendant of Seth. He came from a godly home, an uncompromised spiritual home. This is what brings us to Numbers 25. What happened? Well, the people of Moab did a preemptive spiritual attack on the people of Israel to get them judged by God. They got them involved in unequally yoked relationships, got them to practice sexual morality and worshiping idols, and as a result, thousands of them died. There would be a reason for Genesis to warn them about this, but what would be the application of the Nephilim if it was just angels that decided to make a half-human hybrid race? Hey, girls, uh, don't get raped by angels. A, that's weird, and two, that's not what the text can support, nor what the rest of the Bible would affirm. We take the first position, any note of hybridization is reading too much sci-fi into the text. Wow. Thank you all for joining us. I'm going to go get a fire extinguisher for Sean's brain. That was awesome, and we'll see you next time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.